This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. we got a lot to talk about. Uh, well, some time for your phone calls coming up in this hour for you. Other issues to get to. Yes, obviously, big news uh, out of the United States today and certainly uh, repercussions here. Uh, the decision uh, on Roe v. Wade and the whole question of uh, criminalizing abortion. We will get back to that issue. Like I say, a few other things to get to. Uh, another story unfolding in the U.S., and it's similar to what's been unfolding in Canada, the debate around tobacco control and, and how best to, to bring down smoking rates further. Now, Canada's taking the somewhat odd approach, I would argue, of putting warnings on individual cigarettes. What about harm reduction? Interestingly, in the U.S., uh, the Biden administration is talking about a plan to reduce nicotine levels in cigarettes in the hopes of reducing smoking levels, but at the same time, uh, they're moving to poll a popular e-cigarette off the market completely. Jewel e-cigarettes are, are set to be banned in the United States. They've been blamed for contributing to the youth vaping problem. Joining us to talk about the impact all of this has on public health and how harm reduction can help bring down uh, smoking rates and tobacco use. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Charles Gardner, Executive Director with INCO, the International Network of Nicotine Consumer Organizations. He's a neurobiologist, over 25 years working in global public health. Dr. Gardner, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Let's talk about Juul, first of all. Obviously, Juul is a popular brand of, of these cigarettes. Uh, the U.S. Uh, looks as though now the FDA deciding that they're going to pull Juul off the market. How did it get to this point, and what, what do you think the impact's going to be? Well, I, this is the uh, end of years of vilifying Juul. And, you know, I, I have to say, within the community of ex-smokers who use safer nicotine alternatives, we're not we're not really big fans of Juul. However, uh, we're aware of the kind of propaganda effort that has been, they're like the, you know, the whipping boy of, of this whole uh, field. Juul launched in 2015. Um, and uh, immediately after that, most people don't know this, but U.S. high school nicotine vaping dropped about 30% the next year by 2016. Today, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, National Youth Tobacco Survey, 0.6% of U.S. high school students are using Juul, even taking one puff in the past month, um, which suggests that uh, frequent use would be about 0.3% and daily use is 0.2%. Kids are not not even using this thing today, and I, I do believe it was part of the 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 fad during the during 2018, 2019, and got everybody into a huge moral panic. And it was easy to blame them uh, because their launch back in 2015 was profoundly naive and stupid. Um, because they used uh, models who were twenty something in to their to their um, i guess in support of what they were trying to do first of all, they had no idea because they were silicon valley guys second, they hired some outside p r firm to run their launch campaign, and because they are legally not allowed to tell their smoker customers the truth, uh, they had to go with lifestyle issues. Mm -hmm. So they used young adult models who were all very attractive and they looked very happy holding the device. And that's the, those are the images that are uh, constantly used to show that they were trying to attract teens. So if you can't tell your customers 
this will help you quit smoking and this will reduce your risk of cancer, heart and lung disease, uh, you are legally required, I mean, restricted from, from telling the truth and, and only allowed to go with what any company does when it's trying to attract adult customers, which is young, attractive people. So we go back to 0.6% are using this product today in the United States at the high school level. It's much, much lower at, in middle school. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, about 1.5 million U.S. adults are using the product to quit smoking or to reduce their use of cigarettes. So when you ban Juul, uh, far more than 95% of the people who are affected by that prohibition are adults. And uh, by my estimate, about 600,000 uh, Americans have quit smoking with Juul and continue to use it. Um, presumably another several hundred thousand have quit smoking with Juul and later quit Juul mm -hmm. and just don't vape anymore. So, but if we go to that 600,000, Okay, you, the FDA's decision puts 600,000 ex-smokers who are using Juul at risk of relapse to smoking. And I have to point out here that death from tobacco is final. Yep. Use, use can change and demonstrably does change. Uh, but death is final. And, and I, it's, it's very difficult for me because I used to teach healthcare ethics to understand how um, use and death are being weighed in this equation by the FDA. Right. Is it? I mean, are we treating vaping and smoking the same? And I mean, does, does that partly explain this approach? Or, you know, it just feels like the focus on harm reduction has, has been lost here. Yeah, well, it looks like smoking, right? So yeah. um, there is... Uh, there are way too many conspiracy theories around this area. <laughs> I will tell you, I'll tell you this. I've worked for 25 years in the field of global health research, and I've worked on HIV, TB, malaria, dengue, rabies, child health, and uh, early childhood development issues. And I, as you said, I'm a developmental neurobiologist, so I have some understanding of the effects of nicotine and so on. But I have I guess, an unusual perspective on, on this field of tobacco control. And I, I mean, I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I have to say it's, it's gone a bit off the rails. You have an army of people around the world who are uh, have spent their entire careers uh, attacking and, you know, conducting the correct uh, and, you know, fundamentally good and uh, war against big tobacco, yeah. uh, which is something that I, I'm on board with, um, but who seem incapable of understanding the concept of harm reduction. You mentioned the Biden administration. It, it, it coincidentally is the first U.S. administration to embrace drug harm reduction. And I have to point out here that nicotine is a mild psychoactive drug like caffeine. It is... A drug. I remember someone in the field of drug harm reduction telling me, you know, your problem is that nicotine just isn't harmful enough. If it was heroin, if it was cocaine, then, you know, then you could get people on board with harm reduction. Nicotine and tobacco and smoking uh, is, is, in a, is in a strange place right now. That's what it seems like. I do think maybe part of the reason, uh, because you alluded to how, you know, vaping has been a, a, a gateway to getting people off of tobacco. I think there are still some who view it the other way, that, that somehow e-cigarettes can be a gateway to cigarettes, that vaping is somehow a gateway to tobacco. But do, do we have any evidence that, that suggests that's the case? Um, uh, yeah, you, you opened several cans of worms. Uh, <laughs> right. But so the, the, uh, there's a lot of confusion about nicotine. Um, I, I, I do want to take a step back, though. It, I'm not here to promote e-cigarettes. I'm not here to promote any individual products or especially not to promote Juul. Right. And um, what I am here to do is to support the rights uh, of 
there are 112 million people worldwide who use safer nicotine to avoid toxic forms of tobacco. So e-cigarettes are just one of those options. But I think a fundamental pivot point in all of this is a public understanding of nicotine because it has been deliberately demonized. Um, and to some extent, you know, maybe that was justifiable when the main source of nicotine was deadly cigarettes back decades ago. But there are uh, safer nicotine alternatives now. So we, we call these tobacco harm reduction products. They include nicotine patches, nicotine gum, nicotine lozenges that are available over the counter in every pharmacy in Canada and the United States. But they also include something called SNUS, on uh, which we have four decades of epidemiological research from Sweden, mm -hmm. and which um, have been authorized by the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. as they, they are literally allowed now to tell their customers this thing is safer than cigarettes, which is, you know, a step forward. Um, we have... Um, uh, nicotine vapes or e-cigarettes. There are the new products that have come out in the last four years called nicotine pouches. There are heat, heated tobacco products. So nicotine is not the enemy here. Um, but people have confused, and I alluded to this earlier, a lot of people c kind of use the words smoking and tobacco and nicotine as if they're synonymous. They're right. very different. And nicotine, so if we just go to the misunderstandings around nicotine, uh, Rutgers University did a, uh, published a study a year and a half ago that showed that 80%, so 80% of American physicians believe that nicotine causes cancer and heart disease and lung disease. Now, none of those things are true, and we know this uh, uh, among many reasons, because we have four decades of research on SNUS, which is a tobacco product, there's no cancer, there's no heart disease, there's no lung disease. We know it from nicotine patches, nicotine gum, nicotine lozenges. They don't cause those diseases. It's the solid particulates, it's the carcinogens, and the carbon monoxide that are in s s combustible tobacco smoke that are that's killing people. Nicotine... Um, so we can say four out of five American doctors are profoundly misinformed about nicotine. When when they're misinformed, let's assume the public is equally misinformed, and that's that's dragging down like a like a sea anchor. Every every, every conversation anyone wants to have about an, a nicotine a safer nicotine delivery product that helps smokers quit and could therefore save lives. I'm curious. I mean, the, the Biden administration, it sounds like there, there are plans in the works to reduce overall nicotine levels in cigarettes to make them less attractive to smokers. Is that an approach that can at least fit in with with a harm reduction strategy? Is there some potential benefit to that approach if we have safer nicotine alternatives to offer? Yeah, it's another nuanced area. So it, we know we've known for decades that if you give a smoker a 50 percent reduced nicotine cigarette, they're going to puff more often and deeper into their lungs to try to get the nicotine that they're missing. So that's harmful. Um, so what the FDA has done is to invest literally millions of U.S. dollars into um, helping one company, uh, one Canadian company, to develop a, a product that is basically ultra-low nicotine. It, it's, its nicotine levels are so low that you could... It's not quite zero, but nearly so. And so um, they have uh, genetically modified plants, and they're producing this nicotine. And um, it. so you, what you have is all the harm, right, because it's still a combustible tobacco cigarette, and about half the pleasure, because nicotine isn't the only thing that makes smokers smoke. It's the hand-mouth ritual. It's the oral olfactory and visual stimuli and the throat hit and monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which enhance the pleasure and, the, and, you know, and nicotine, right? So we've got a product now that has nearly no nicotine, uh, which uh, the U.S. government has invested millions of dollars in helping to develop. Um, and my take and the take of my organization is if this, if this helps one smoker quit and thus not die, and thus not die, 
it's a good thing. Right. However, the the oddness of a U.S. government agency investing millions of dollars to develop a deadly product, and uh, while it is systematically prohibiting safer nicotine alternatives and has never invested a dime in setting standards for safety for the devices and the liquids um, and in helping any legitimate uh, nicotine vape company develop better and safer products is uh, it's just odd it's very very odd we'll have to leave it there for now dr gardner appreciate your insight on all of this thank you so much for making some time for us here today really appreciate this thank you all the best uh, there you go. That is Dr. Charles Gardner, Executive Director of INCO, International Network of Nicotine Consumer Organizations. Uh, we're a quarter century working in uh, global public health and also, uh, as you mentioned, a developmental neurobiologist. So some unique perspective on, you know, what can work, what we know works, and, and where maybe policy is perhaps counterproductive on that side. Welcome back. Rob Reaganridge with you. You've got a few of the things we'll get to on this Friday afternoon. But I want to talk about what's happening in the tech sector, more specifically, I guess what we would refer to as the cryptocurrency sector, which obviously includes uh, blockchain technology uh, and the like. So it's, you know, it's it's more than just Bitcoin, but basically the, the crypto sector, which I think falls into more broadly the tech sector. The problems, I think, in the crypto sector have been dragging down the tech sector recently. And so some of the concern around um, what we've seen in the crash in, in cryptocurrency values, you know, that's more broadly affecting the tech sector. So we've seen some layoffs, a lot of uncertainty. But at the same time, is it too soon to write off this technology? Is it too soon, for example, to write off Alberta's attempts to lure those companies here to Alberta to be a tech hub, to be more specifically a crypto hub? Now, this has been a real focus in, in recent months, uh, that Alberta has uh, made a point of trying to, to lure those companies uh, to Canada, here to Alberta. Now, with what's happened recently in, in the uh, crypto sector, I think some are, are kind of dunking on the premier and the government here. You know, that's what a bad move. This is blown up in your face. Uh, what a mistake. But was it a bad bet? Or is it too soon to, to draw those conclusions? And maybe this is a sector that's going through some growing pains, but it's still going to exist in some capacity. And if so, doesn't it make sense that, you know, these companies that, that survive all of this, at least, uh, that they have a footprint here in Alberta, that we're looking to, to draw those companies, to draw those jobs here? So what's the, the most reasonable way to, to look at that question? Joining us for some thoughts. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Ryan Clements, Assistant Professor and Chair in Business Law and Regulation at the University of Calgary. Professor Clements, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the program. So in terms of drawing conclusions here about the strength of, of the crypto sector, the future of the crypto sector, is it too soon to draw conclusions in your view? Well, I think that we're definitely at a reflection point. <clears throat> we are seeing the crypto market has uh, faced some instability. Some are calling it a moment of truth. I think the way that I'm looking at it is more of a let's pause and compare maybe some of the the uh, idealistic narratives that have been in place with some of the realities, and then and then where do we go from here? So some of the kind of idealistic narratives that we've seen, crypto serving a medium of exchange, we've seen it's been too volatile for that. You know, having a digital gold analog store of value, we're seeing people actually trade it like they would trade a risk asset. Cryptocurrencies are largely correlated. There's a whole host of cryptocurrencies. Today, there's 19,993 different uh, cryptocurrencies. We've seen the creation of new forms of leverage and, and new lending dynamics. And we've also seen, uh, you know, other particular aspects of the crypto ecosystem which have facilitated and kind of accelerated the sell-off lately. We've, despite the notion of it being decentralized, we we actually see a market that has pronounced concentrated holdings and, and very large, powerful players and very big whale holders. And when they sell, there's, there's follow-on effects. And we're seeing, despite the idea of it being something that disintermediates legacy financial institutions like banks and, and, and lenders, we've actually seen the emergence of a whole bunch of intermediaries, new crypto banks, crypto exchanges, crypto lenders, protocols that allow for certain services that take place within the crypto ecosystem. 
The net effect of all this is when there's been a sell-off of risk assets, there's been contagion effects across this ecosystem and across these intermediaries, and we're seeing some of these intermediaries fail. Intermediaries like Celsius, who was advertising itself to un- unbank yourself, to-, to use this, and they were performing a form of fractional reserve lending, and, and now they've had a run on-, on their bank. So you're seeing fragility across the sector and a contagion across the sector. Now, to come to your question, though, is it too soon? I would say we, we really don't know exactly what the sector is going to look like in the future. You're seeing a lot of people that are coming forward and saying, well, this is dot-com. What happened after dot-com is a lot of participants failed, but some emerged stronger. What emerged became the next generation infrastructure uh, uh, that supported technological processes. And and you know, and, and, but others aren't that bullish. We we really don't know. We're we're at a, we're at a moment of reflection in the market right now. Right. And yeah, it's interesting you make the parallel because you know I think with the dot com era there was I don't know if bubble was the right word. Maybe it was a bubble to some extent, but just you know there was a lot of hype. So underneath some of the the actual strengths in the industry, you know, people buying anything with the dot com and people looking to make a fast buck and just you know kind of the trendiness of it almost. It feels like there have been some of those elements that were fueling the the surge in crypto recently. People that didn't really know what they were getting into, uh, you know, and some of that that hype and, and all of that. Maybe once that shakes out, we can get back to some semblance of, of sanity and better understand what, you know, this industry is really all about. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think that that's a good way to put it. So so what, what a lot of people uh, who are long on the sector are hoping for, that a lot of the borrowed money will clear out. You know, one of the ironies in the market is that the the original appeal of Bitcoin, let's say, was actually it was a cap on how much Bitcoin could even exist, and and that that was put forward in contrast to uh, money printing of central banks. But what we've actually seen the crypto market produce is almost an unlimited proliferation of new tokens. Some tokens, you know, purport to hold, like algorithmic stable coins, which I've criticized quite heavily in my scholarship, purport to hold a stable value, and a very famous one failed catastrophically. There's been new forms of credit creation, crypto credit creation. So it's almost like the crypto money supply has, has extended. And, and as leverage gets built up in the system, this leverage has to go somewhere in the crash. And what a lot of people are hoping is that the borrowed money will clear out, prices will reset, it becomes an entry point, and then it builds from there. But, but, but I caution still, and, and I think that this is a moment of truth for crypto industry, and, and I actually hope to see more real-world use cases. What crypto is showing so far, and DeFi in particular, is and it, a, a desire for people to speculate on the values of tokens and for income earning opportunities. We're not seeing yet a lot of real world use cases with defined consumer utility and financial inclusionary value. We're not seeing a lot of enterprise applications and reg tech applications, but conceptually the ideas are there. And I know that there's many developers in the space. I know many personally who are very thoughtful, regulatory friendly, wanting to create, um, uh, you know, new processes for financial services. And, and, and I, I believe that, that that type of entrepreneurship is positive for society. But, but I think this, you know, buy coins because they go up, and that's the only reason. I think that that idea is being contested very heavily now. So where does that leave us then in terms of assessing Alberta's efforts here, both the desire to attract uh, this sector here and the success or, or lack thereof of those efforts? Mm-hmm. So I advocate for uh, what I call a diversified ecosystem play. So the Alberta has recently put forward, like I, I know in, in, in media, media reports of, you know, accommodating crypto firms, and, and I think maybe some of that is, is maybe a bit overblown. Because what I'm looking at particularly is legislative action. We, we have a, a recently um, uh, passed statute called the Financial Innovation Act, which looks to foster more uh, financial diversity and, and allow for, you know, an increased ecosystem build of, of, of financial uh, a new market entrance and, and maybe even some, you know, ways that our existing financial uh, uh, institutions can be more competitive. These types of regulatory mechanisms are called sandboxes. They're very, very, very common. Over 
57 countries have them. They've been in place in, in many countries like the UK, Australia, Norway, Japan for, for quite a long time. The Canadian Securities Administrators have had one here in this country since, since uh, 2017. We've recently instituted one here that looks to provide effectively a constrained live testing environment, and I think that that's a positive thing. I think it's a positive thing, but, it, but I also think that it needs to stay technology neutral. We need to be careful to really bet on which technology is going to be the winner. Let's let the market figure that out, but let's bet on entrepreneurs. Stay technology neutral. Make sure that we have necessary safeguards, things like term limits, terms and conditions, penalties for companies that breach this. Let's use the data to inform policy. Like when, when new technology, I study new technology and the regulatory implications and how to regulate new technology. When new financial technology comes into the market, regulators have a, a challenge, and they, they effectively have a choice. On the one hand, they can just wait and, and see what happens, but we're seeing kind of what's happening with that approach in, in the U.S. right now, particularly around things like DeFi and algorithmic stablecoins. You, you can move quickly and, and either try to apply your existing regulatory framework or create new laws, but you, you might get it wrong. You also might be captured in, in terms of, of in certain industry interests. So these sandboxes are quite common to use as kind of a test and learn environment. And, and I'm happy that we have one here. I think that it will both inform regulatory policy, but it will also lower barriers to entry. No one accuses our country of having an overly competitive financial services landscape. I think it will help lower barriers to entry, help stimulate entrepreneurship. But I see crypto as one piece in this. Not the only piece, one piece in this. I think thoughtful entrepreneurs, thoughtful developers who are looking to provide real-world use cases of blockchain, I think that they should be supported, but I think that it should be supported as part of a larger ecosystem of, of diversified technology. Really interesting perspective. Professor Clements, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thanks for the insight. Uh, that is uh, Ryan Clements, Assistant Professor and, and Chair in Business Law and Regulation at the University of Calgary. I think that's the right way to look at it. I, I'm, I'm not necessarily bullish on crypto but I, I think at this point the jury's still out on on how this whole industry is going to shake out and yes there's some you know some some shady people who have tried to make a quick buck in all of this hype and excitement and certainly from an investor's pr perspective be careful what you're getting into but i think at the same time if you strip all of that back i think there are some some fundamentals there that that are strong and you know this it's not as though this is all going to vanish Right, so this technology has has gone mainstream, and, and certainly I think there there are some companies that that are going to be around for a while. I don't know if it's up to the Alberta government to sit here and decide which those are, but at least to recognize that this is part of the tech sector going forward. And if we want to be a hub for technology, if we want tech jobs, if we want you know tech companies setting up shop in Edmonton, Calgary, etc., then uh, this is part of it. All right, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Reaganridge with you here on this Thursday afternoon. So this uh, public inquiry continues into the uh, mass shooting, the massacre that unfolded in Nova Scotia in April of 2020. Uh, I think there's been a lot of controversy around this inquiry, why it took so long to call this inquiry, whether this inquiry is actually interested in getting to the bottom of all of this. I think to some it's uh, at times felt like more of a cover up than anything. But something interesting emerged this week, and it was a, a document that was made available as a part of this process. First noticed by the Halifax Examiner, picked up by other media outlets. It was a briefing note uh, from Superintendent Darryl, uh, Darren Campbell, Nova Scotia RSKMP, who was one of the individuals summoned to this meeting on April 28th, 2020, uh, just over a week after the massacre. It was Brenda Lucky, the RCMP commissioner, uh, who summoned Campbell and others. One of the things she was upset about was that the RCMP didn't release information at the time uh, with regard to the firearms that Wortman was in possession of and, and used in the massacre. That Brenda Lucky wanted that information released. Was it because of transparency concerns? As the notes say, quote, the commissioner said she had promised the Minister of Public Safety in the Prime Minister's office that the RCMP would release this information. It goes on to say, the commissioner said that this was tied to pending gun control legislation that would make officers and the public safer. According to this account of the meeting, Brenda Lucky not only endorsed the government's gun control agenda, 
but said that she had made a promise to intervene here. Now, both of those things seem highly inappropriate. So what exactly happened here? Brenda Lucky's own statement is is rather vague in all of this. But we had a denial yesterday from uh, Bill Blair, who was the Minister of Public Safety. And today, uh, speaking in Rwanda, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had the following to say. Did your office or any other office pressure Commissioner Lucky or negotiate with Commissioner Lucky to release specific information about those killings to help advance gun legislation? Would those conversations have been appropriate and do you still have confidence in the Commissioner to lead the RCMP? Uh, Absolutely not. Uh, on the pressure. We did not uh, put any uh, undue influence or pressure. It is extremely important to highlight that it is only um, it is only the RCMP, it is only police uh, that determine what and when to release information. Uh, the Commissioner's statement, the Minister's statement were very clear on that. And yes, I still uh, very much have, support, have uh, confidence in, in Commissioner Lucky. I will highlight, however, that when the worst mass shooting in Canada's history happened, we had a lot of questions. Canadians had a lot of questions. Uh, and I got regular briefings on what we knew, what we didn't know. Uh, and those answers continue to come out even as the public inquiry is ongoing so families can actually learn uh, what happened. And we will continue to take responsible action. Okay, so that's what the Prime Minister had to say today. Uh, There's an interesting piece up at The Line, uh, theline.substack.com, on how problematic this all is. As our next guest says, either Lucky herself has to go, or Trudeau and Blair do. Joining us to talk a bit more about uh, where things stand in this saga, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Nova Scotia-based journalist Stephen Marr, joining us on The Line here. Stephen, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. First of all, in terms of assessing the the fallout here, I guess, you know, the first step is to really establish what happened here. We've obviously got these these briefing notes taken by this uh, RCMP commander. Those are legit. We know they exist. Where does this all go from here, first of all, in terms of understanding what went on? Well, I uh, I think that depends on whether we'll have committee hearings. Uh, I haven't seen news today about that. I think that would be wise because... um, we have a, a pretty serious questions here about attempted political interference uh, in an investigation. Uh, it, it may not be quite as bad as it seems, but uh, whether it is or not, it's the kind of thing that it's best to get to the bottom of it and clear the air and then we can move on. Well, we heard the Prime Minister uh, deny that there was any kind of pressure on Brenda Lucky or any kind of arrangement with her. Bill Blair has said the same thing. Brenda Lucky's statement, on the other hand, was uh, a little more vague. So wh- what did you make so far? What did you make of Brenda Lucky's statement, first of all, and, and what we've heard from uh, political leadership? Well, um, Brenda, Brenda Lucky seemed to kind of confirm what... Uh, uh, Superintendent Campbell said, which is that she brought up the political goals of the Conservatives uh, when she spoke to uh, Campbell and other shell-shocked Nova Scotia Mounties just 10 days after uh, this terrible tragedy. Uh, so it seemed as though she acknowledged going over the line, um, although she didn't say, I went over the line. I'm saying I think she went over the line because uh, she shouldn't be... Uh, telling these people, well, we've got to do this to please the political masses. The question is whether they wanted her to do that, whether they told her to do that. Ultimately, they're responsible one way or another because they appointed her. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it seems likeliest that she was kind of freelancing. She was thinking, well, they're trying to get this through. I should see if I can do that for them. Yeah. Um, you would think that an old police officer as savvy as Bill Blair, a police officer turned politician, would know not to ask for something like that. Right? That's what you would think. Right. And and you you raise the possibility that, you know, that that Bill Blair and and Justin Trudeau were telling the truth uh, and that this was just really poor judgment on Brenda Lucky's part. I mean, that's one plausible way of of squaring all of this, isn't it? I think that seems um, fairly likely. I don't know if you saw her testify 
uh, was it last year uh, before a Commons committee where she really struggled uh, to, to to articulate systemic racism and how that uh, is a factor in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Not the easiest concept in the world, but the members of Parliament were kind of shaking their heads at some of her answers, and she had to issue a clarification later. She does not seem to be the most politically astute person in the world. Nobody's questioning her devotion to duty and so on, uh, but her political judgment, which is necessary in this kind of role, um, it's an open question. Right, and this comes up in the backdrop, obviously, of all the questions that are being asked of the RCMP with regard to the Nova Scotia massacre. Obviously, the force has been dealing with all kinds of other challenges. So, I mean, it's possible to look at this in a vacuum, but, you know, there's also that broader context of, you know, writing the ship here, as it were. So, where, where does that leave Brenda Lucky? Is she, is she in a tenable position? I don't think so, and that's the article that I wrote for The Line uh, this week, is I think, she likely has to go because you, know, you think about all the officers uh, going to work every day across the country. I don't think they had a whole lot of faith in her to begin with. And now, how, how are they going to feel about how they're being led? Uh, the force has so many problems, which, was, which we're learning in Portofix. Nobody thinks that that was a successful law enforcement operation when they handled the shooting there. So, and a lot of people who know a lot about this think that the force is going to be under pressure to change the way it does things after the inquiry finishes and that stuff fixing the rcmp nothing could be more difficult than that yeah and the question i have is does it look like brenda lucky is the kind of person who can tackle that sort of very difficult job some big questions. As mentioned, your latest, it's up at uh, the line, theline.substack.com. Stephen, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm glad to do it. Thank you. All right, there you go. Journalist uh, Stephen Marr, his thoughts on this uh, whole controversy, where it all goes from here. Interestingly, uh, Paul Palango, we've spoken with many times. He's a journalist who's been following the inquiry and in, in the aftermath of this massacre very closely, wrote a book about it that we talked to him a few weeks ago about. Uh, he's been covering this for Frank magazine. He had an interesting piece last night wondering if somebody in the RCMP is throwing Brenda Lucky under the bus. The, the timing of this uh, memo coming to light is interesting. Uh, and, and throwing her under the bus is a way of distracting from something else. But what might that something else be? The only the big thing that happened this week was uh, the release of the videos, the surveillance videos, which kind of mark the end of the manhunt for Gabriel Wardman when uh, the RCMP found him at a gas station and he was shot dead. Paul Belango said uh, those videos are problematic to the RCMP narrative. They, they contradict what RCMP officers, the RCMP officers who were the ones in that vehicle who confronted Gabriel Wardman, contradicts what they have said on the stand. Uh, the narrative is that even though they had half a tank of gas, they decided that they were just going to, to stop and get gas. And it just so happened that Gabriel Wartman was at the same gas station. And the RCMP vehicle pulled up in a very unusual way if you're just stopping to get gas. And lo and behold, there's Gabriel Wartman. Now, at the end of the day, I mean, Gabriel Wartman was, was shot dead. Nobody's shedding any tears. But in terms of how they described it, it it's, there's some, some contradictions with what the video shows. The implication here is that they knew he was there. Uh, and, and they pulled up and, and they shot him. I, mean, we, I don't know that we can confirm that at this point. And again, not that anyone would shed any tears for Gabriel Wardman. But if that's what happened, then, then why say otherwise? And was there an opportunity, you know, to at least try to arrest him? Anyway, so I do wonder how much of a factor that is, why this memo has come to light now suddenly. But look, it's a legit memo. Somebody who was in that meeting. Uh, someone who took notes that were not ever intended to see the light of day. How do we square this circle here? Let's revisit uh, an announcement from the federal government earlier this week. Canada is moving ahead with plans to uh, ban single-use plastics. By the end of 2025, by next year, it's going to be illegal to manufacture and import certain single-use plastic products. Now, this is all part of an overall strategy uh, to get to zero plastic waste by 2030. 
Is that doable, first of all? And what's the impact of that going to be? Uh, certainly, there's going to be a cost to business and by extension to consumers uh, with phasing of these products, trying to replace them with something else. Is there actual environmental benefit, though, to offset that? It's a really interesting uh, new study out today from the Fraser Institute looking at some of these questions in greater depth. Uh, that this plan is not likely to have much of a significant impact on the environment, but definitely will impose high costs on Canadians. Read more at FraserInstitute.org. Joining us uh, here this afternoon is the author of that study, Dr. Kenneth Green, is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Uh, Kenneth, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. We got you there? Yeah, Rob. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. (laughs) Sorry about that. Glad yeah, you make some time for us here today. Good to talk to you. Uh, okay, so we, we you know we heard the announcement earlier this week. The government's moving forward on on various aspects uh, of this plan. The target is still twenty thirty. Uh, so we we know what they're aspiring to, but do we have a good understanding yet of, of what the impact of all of this is going to be? I think we do actually, and it's refreshing because the government's own regulatory impact analysis, which they published in the Canada, is available for anybody to read. Uh, actually, it, it explicitly admits that essentially uh, we don't have a plastic disposal problem in Canada at the moment. That the costs of of going to zero plastic uh, waste by 2030 will be twice as much as the economic benefits of doing so. Uh, the trade-off is all of this substance that has to be disposed of by municipalities at lower cost for consumers and Canadians. Um, and essentially, global trouble in the oceans. Kenneth, you there? Yeah, hi, Rob. There we go. All right, perfect. Yeah, we're speaking with Kenneth Green, senior fellow of the Fraser Institute, author of this new study looking at Canada's plans to try to regulate and reduce plastic waste. And we look at the the, the benefits and the cost of this plan. You were making an interesting point there, Kenneth, because. Um, you know, to what extent is plastic waste uh, a, a major problem right now in Canada? Well, that, that's a, a really good question. And in fact, it, it's not, depending on how you define waste. So right now, 99% of Canada's plastic waste are handled one of generally three ways. Some is recycled, not that much. Some is incinerated, also not that much. And the majority of that plastic waste are actually put into landfills what they call sanitary landfills or, or basically regulated landfills, the same as we would for many other kinds of waste that we generate from everything from concrete, wood, um, and uh, metals, chemicals, uh, food waste, etc. So it's not being released to the environment in the sense that it's not being dumped offshore. It's not being dumped out in open fields. The plastic waste Canada has right now, 99% of it or better, is uh, being kept away from the environment and disposed of safely. Uh, the, the government's plan would shift some of that from being landfilled to being recycled, but it really wouldn't change that overall dynamic of the fact that almost all of the waste is handled safely right now. Well, that's an interesting point. What about the global problem? And obviously, I think Canadians are well aware that, that there is a problem globally when it comes to plastic pollution in oceans. Uh, and maybe Canada can be a part of addressing that. But are we contributing to the problem at all? Well, that's the issue, is, is Canada really isn't contributing to the problem in any meaningful way. In fact, what I show in this report is that should the government's plan to get to zero plastic waste by 2030 work, it would only result in a three one hundred thousandths of 1% reduction in Canada's plastics uh, emitted to the environment, right? So that could get to the oceans or be part of the global plastics problem. So really, we're not part of the problem. And, and somebody was asking me earlier, well, shouldn't Canada lead by example? And I would say, we are. Absolutely, we are. I mean, how much better an example can you set than handling 99% of your plastic waste safely and keeping them away from the environment? How much better example can you set? If people are simply to follow what Canada is doing internationally, that would address a huge amount of the global plastic problem right there. Yeah. But so, So we are leading by example. All right, so as we move forward then uh, with these various stages of this plan, we're going to, to ban the import and manufacture of certain plastic products by next year. Uh, that's the first of several steps to come here. So what's the impact of that going to be then in terms of what businesses are going to have to do to pivot, the impact that's going to have on consumers? 
Well, that's basically a, a, a lot of studies over the years have shown that actually you get very perverse outcomes when you ban uh, plastic products. So people have looked at the banning of plastic bags, plastic uh, utensils, plastic straws, plastic uh, cups, plastic bottles. And what they find is that what consumers switch to as alternatives, because people are still going to drink water, people are still going to package their food, people are still going to wrap things up in, in packaging materials, but what people choose as alternatives have worse characteristics both for the environment and the economy and the generation of waste than the plastics do themselves. And so the first thing we're looking at is actually a worsening of our waste problems uh, in terms of people switching to alternatives that are worse for the environment, worse for their health, worse for the economy. Another problem that we're going to have is that, uh, in fact, is it, this is a more slightly more abstract problem, but Canada has a growing um, petrochemicals industry and a plastics right. industry, and that's one approach, especially in Alberta, that's one venue which people have thought might be a really good way for Canada to excel in the international market that would use, take advantage of Alberta's um, endowment of oil sands, uh, because that basically that is what plastics are made from and petrochemicals are made from. The petro is petroleum, fossil fuels. Um, and so the moving away from plastics will probably impact Canada's uh, nascent but growing uh, petrochemical industry and petrochemical sector um, which is in three hubs across Canada, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec. And that, that is something to consider, which is it's a future prospect being closed off for the use uh, of, and development of uh, Alberta's oil sands. It's interesting, too, obviously, coming off of the last few years where in, in all kinds of different capacities, you know, related to the pandemic, we've seen plastic use increase significantly. So it's, it, it's kind of awkward for the government, isn't it, that, you know, obviously they, they've, they've driven a lot of that in terms of requirements that have been imposed uh, related to the pandemic to now say we got to do this dramatic pivot and, and reduce our plastic use. Well, absolutely. I think probably the most uh, litter, plastic litter people are seeing these days are actually masks. So, so it's like uh, the government mandates uh, with regard to, to COVID have dramatically increased the use of plastics. But in general, people's response to COVID uh, shows you the, the value of plastics because the very first thing everybody did basically was reach for the wipes and the plastic bottles and uh, the things seen as hygienic and sanitary and safe. Um, uh, in response to what they thought saw as, as a as a world-ending and life-ending threat, and and I think that that a lot of what happened over COVID is, is going to ultimately make these initiatives like Zero Plastic Waste 2030 um, really uh, futile and quixotic because people I think have seen that you can't have a medical system, you can't actually have hygiene or safety without these uh, plastics as part of our life, and if the government's going to try to get rid of them. They're going to have to offer up something else that works just as well at the same cost, with the same uh, impacts. And there's no, there is no alternative out there at present. So um, I suspect government has, is, is chasing a, um, a wild hair on this one. So in terms of, of what a refocus would look like, in terms of either you know, focusing on the recycling side or you know, devoting resources to helping other countries clean up, ocean uh, pollution. I mean, there are a lot of different ways we could go about this. If, if the government's not on the right track right now, what would be a better approach? Well, that's a, another great question. The first thing is I think we should recognize that domestically, to the extent we have a problem, it's a problem of plastics problem. It's a problem of littering. Uh, and so one of the ways we could address that is by actually working with the, uh, municipalities and, and trying to find ways to incentivize governments which have a very heavy uh, presence in waste management to improve uh, waste management and to disincentivize people from littering uh, and from allowing, basically dropping their plastics out into the environment, which is where uh, they're primarily coming from. Um, internationally, again, we're, we, Canada is a very, very tiny part of the problem, but if Canadians, um, you know, voluntarily, I guess, want to help with issues like that, um, they could, I suppose, well, it's really hard to say. That's actually kind of hard to say. I mean, they could voluntarily donate to, to the, some of the charities that do waste cleanups. That's actually something also that could be done at home, which is we do have, um, as, as the government's press releases point out, there are plastics that wash up on Canada's beaches, riversides, um, and blow up across Canada's fields. 
Um, and so um, uh, more emphasis on waste cleanups and improving the routine management of waste cleanup is something governments could focus on and people could focus on that very pragmatically could have a direct impact. Um, I spent a lot of my time growing up in California, and I remember when they started combing the beaches on a regular basis um, to get rid of uh, and trying to get the feet open. Uh, and so there is there's precedent for actually cleaning up the waste at the end point rather than trying to ban its production uh, at the front. And I think people might look to that kind of activity if they want to improve the environment in their local area. Absolutely. Well, as mentioned, the study's uh, up online at FraserInstitute.org. Dr. Green, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Always a pleasure. Likewise. All the best. Uh, Kenneth Green is Senior Fellow of the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org, uh, author of this piece today on Canada's Wasteful Plan to Regulate Plastic Waste. Uh, that there's an enormous cost that comes along with this, in fact, by 2030. Uh, they forecast the annual costs of this program are estimated to exceed the benefits by about $300 million a year. So that's the net cost of this program. It's been almost three months since Alberta removed, I guess temporarily paused, a collection of the gasoline excise tax. Now, the announcement was early March. It was April 1st when that 13 cents a liter tax officially came off. The Alberta government announced this week that it is going to remain off through until the end of September. Now, the policy uh, was, was sort of based around the price of oil, uh, that if uh, oil dropped back down to under $80 a barrel, WTI that is, then uh, that perhaps the tax would return. But as long as it stayed above $90 a barrel, and it's still well north of that, uh, the tax would stay off. So this was meant to provide consumers some relief at the pumps. Now, Part of the, the frustration for consumers maybe is that, you know, the price of gasoline right now is higher than it was before the tax came off. But that doesn't mean that the tax coming off hasn't had an impact or that that hasn't been passed on to consumers. Uh, so you're trying to assess various factors here uh, with what's going on in the gasoline market, but also the effect of, of removing that tax. There's a new analysis uh, out today from the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary that looks at what the impact has been. And joining us to talk a bit more about some of these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, the author of that piece, Gregory Gallet, uh, postdoctorate associate at the School of Public Policy. Uh, Gregory, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hello, and thank you for having me. Uh, so talk a bit about how, how you approach that question of you know, what, uh, trying to assess the impact of this decision. Yeah, so one like like you highlighted, one of the big issues is uh, whether or not the tax reduction would have been fully passed on to consumers. Uh, so that was the centerpiece of this piece that uh, just came out. And what I did was analyze prices following the tax reduction to see how they changed as a result of of that tax decrease. And then com- did a comparison between prices in Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, to see how they change in the weeks following uh, that tax reduction. Saskatchewan similar to Alberta, except for they didn't reduce uh, their provincial excise tax. So it was a good jurisdiction to compare against. Right. So even though you know you do see differences from province to province in terms of taxes, demand, supply, it, more or less we're, we're comparing apples to apples here. Then. Yes, I, I would think so. I think uh, Saskatchewan's a very good uh, comparison province, um, very similar um, to Alberta as it compared to, say, comparing Ontario. But, uh, yeah, the, the results show that um, Alberta drivers are benefiting the full amount of that tax decrease uh, okay. that was implemented. Okay, so that's interesting. So I think, you know, certainly it was it was more visible on April 1st, and I think anecdotally, I mean, I, I saw it, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people saw, the price did drop that day, more or less in, in keeping with the tax increase. So can we look to, to April 1st as an example and, and see uh, an immediate decline in gasoline prices? Yeah, um, we saw uh, a significant decrease in the price of uh, gasoline uh, that first day that the tax decrease came into effect. And uh, compared, like, over the following weeks, it seems to still be in place. Now, like you said in the introduction, prices, you know, at the pump have increased. But that's being driven by increases in crude oil prices and not as a result of 
uh, this tax not being passed on to consumers. Right. And so that that's the trickier part of this, because I, I know there are some who have that suspicion that, oh, sure, these guys lowered the price right away. And then uh, they basically recouped all of that for themselves. So how do we distinguish then uh, in that sense? Because, you know, you could look at this as well and say, well, the price today is still 13 cents a liter less than it would otherwise be. So how do you figure that out? Yes, that's very tricky um, to kind of suss out. Uh, There's multiple factors that go into it. Not only do uh, retail producers can adjust their margins, but refineries can adjust their margins as well. And we tried to do this analysis in such a way that we kind of excluded those factors from coming into play. So we're doing this comparison over time. So those factors were hopefully netted out uh, and weren't uh, influencing what we were looking at, which was specifically the impact of taxes on price. So those factors could be what's um, what's driven up the price at the pumps, but it's looking like it's not from uh, the retailer standpoint where, right. you know, the tax has been fully passed on to consumers and, you know, they're not keeping, say, half of that tax for themselves. Interesting. Now, we look at Alberta as a whole. I mean, prices do vary across the province. Prices might even vary slightly between Calgary and Edmonton. But does it seem as though, on the whole, the benefit has been fairly even across the province? Uh, It does. Um, We focus mostly on Edmonton and uh, Calgary in the piece. And uh, it seems like the benefit has been passed on in both of those cities. But also looked at some smaller cities, and it seemed like it had been fully passed on in places like Red Deer and and uh, Lethbridge as well. When we look at the question of, of demand, I mean, I would imagine higher prices, you know, have, have an effect on demand, maybe discourage or reduce demand. You know, there was the, the thought that maybe making the price lower would increase demand. Do we get the sense, has this had any meaningful impact on demand? Uh, we didn't really look at that in my analysis. Uh, I can only say anecdotally, I know I've adjusted my driving habits as a result of, of the higher prices this yeah. spring. Um, so uh, I would assume that, um, you, know, simple, you know, basic supply and demand, people would be adjusting their habits if they have the flexibility to do so. So I would expect slightly less demand as a result of, of the higher prices. The takeaway here, though, and I, I suppose we'll probably see more fluctuation, maybe even higher prices in, in the weeks ahead. But uh, as it stands now, based on the available evidence, that, that tax savings is being passed on to consumer. Yes. Yeah. Consumers, I mean, it's tough to really, you know, maybe not too much solace because the price is higher, but right. uh, it could be higher if the tax holiday wasn't in place. Yeah, important to keep in mind. Well, uh, people can read the analysis. It's up at policy uh, policyschool.ca. Gregory, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate this. All right, thank you for having me. All the best. Uh, Gregory Golay, postdoctorate associate at the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, policyschool.ca. So you can read his analysis. So he's gone through it, as far as they can tell, based on all the available evidence, uh, that the full benefit of this tax holiday is being passed on to Alberta drivers. You know, the April 1st decreases is more obvious. Okay, fair enough. The tax came off, the price dropped by basically the same amount. Okay, but the price has gone up since then. So how much of that is just the natural ebb and flow of the market or how much of that is maybe retailers recouping some of that for themselves? So his conclusion is that no, even though prices have risen, those tax savings are still being passed on. So as frustrating as it is, maybe to drivers that the price of gasoline is higher than it was, even when we had the tax, it's lower than it would otherwise be. So as mentioned, the Alberta government has confirmed that's going to remain in place through the summer. They were reviewed in September. Uh, it's hard to imagine that oil prices would, would plummet by that much. But, um, you know, these things can be a little unpredictable at times. So West Texas Intermediate was down a bit this week, still well over $100 a barrel. We'll see what the summer brings. Well, there's no doubt that the frustration the travelers are dealing with uh, right now is very real. The Canadian Transportation Agency reporting that the total number of complaints it faced arose last year. The agency says there were 28,673 complaints in total for the year up to March 31st. That's up from the year before. 
So there's been a lot of frustration in terms of uh, delays and just general chaos at Canadian airports, uh, Pearson in Toronto in particular. The, tra- uh, the CTA, the Canadian Transportation Agency, is also coming up with new regulations that are meant to offer consumers some protection when it comes to cancelled or delayed flights, which seem to be increasingly the norm these days, that airlines are going to be required to provide refunds or alternative flights to passengers who trips are cancelled or delayed by at least three hours for reasons outside the control of the airlines, which I suspect is going to be an important point here. So is this meaningful? protection for travelers does this go far enough well joining us uh, to talk more about uh those very questions and what this all represents very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon gabra lukax who is president of the group air passenger rights more at airpassengerrights.ca uh, gabra great to have you with us here welcome to the program good afternoon rob Okay, so uh, on the surface, it sounds like these are, are some meaningful regulations from the CTA, but when we look at the fine print, when we look at the details, what, what does that tell us? Unfortunately, the press release doesn't match what is in the regulations. This, what the government put out is really a sham, because when you read the fine print, actually, right to a refund exists only if the airline is unable to provide you alternate transportation within 48 hours of your original flight. So just imagine a passenger who wants to have a weekend getaway. They are flying out on Friday, coming back on Sunday evening. Friday evening's flight canceled. The airline then offers them a flight on Sunday afternoon, which they will never be able to use because they were supposed to be returning on Sunday. They, of course, cannot fly out, and the airline pockets their money. That's what the government claims improvement to passengers' rights. So what about the question of refunds? Are passengers going to be able to get refunds in a timely fashion? Well, I just told you that, that, that in most cases, passengers won't be getting refund at all, not now and not later, because they won't qualify for it. Because even though the purpose of their trip uh, does not make it feasible for them to travel two days later, the airline will just be able to pocket their money without ever giving them a refund. But when you, when you look at the timelines, in those rare occasions when these regulations might, might confer anything meaningful in terms of right to refund, the airline will be able to keep passengers' money for up to 30 days. Both of these um, measures are a substantial crackdown, substantial clawback on passengers' rights, and they, they are unparalleled in the Western world. If you look at United States or the European Union or um, Israel or even a country like Turkey, it's a no-brainer that if your flight is canceled for any reason, they have to offer you the opportunity to refund, no questions asked. It doesn't matter whether they have another flight for you in uh, two hours, three hours, on, or two days. If you bought, a, say, a 6 a.m. flight and that flight is canceled, you can say to the airline, give me back my money. Not in Canada, though. Right. So you mentioned the, you know, the, the scenario of an alternative flight that is useless to, to the traveler, that if you don't accept that, you've, you've basically forsaken your rights here. You don't have the option of a refund, that you're expected to take that alternative flight, even if it's of no use. That's what the regulations imply. Now, we need to remember that the APPR is not the only source of passengers' rights. It's not a complete code. So this is likely going to entice even more litigation and more conflict and more frustration for passengers. But what is so profoundly troubling about this is that the government is presenting something so substandard that that is, is worse than anything that you would see in any Western country as the, the next best improvement for passengers which I'm finding troubling and hypocritical. Now, by the way, and this, this doesn't take effect for a while yet, and it's not retroactive either, is it? No, it's, it, it's, it's coming to effect on September 8th, but it really will make no difference. Even if it came into effect tomorrow, the, the conditions for a refund are so absurd that for most passengers, it is going to make no difference. So going forward then, I mean, you, you, you give the examples of the U.S. and the European Union. I mean, there's, there's a template there for what this can look like. So in terms of what the government, what the CTA specifically should actually be doing, they, they don't have to look far for meaningful policy, do they? That's correct. They, they, it, it's really um, stunning why they are, they are trying to create something so favorable, so tilted in the airline's favor, while there are other models readily available. And also Canada, given our 
geographic and economic size, we should be synchronizing with other similar Western jurisdictions like the U.S. or the European Union, or ideally in some way both. So it, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive what the government is doing. Uh, what passengers can do at this juncture is vote with their wallets. For many people, not all, but for many people, uh, there is an option to just fly out from a U.S. airport and avoid Canadian uh, airlines and Canadian, Canadian regulations altogether and just travel from a location which uh, has proper passenger protection and where, by the way, the U.S. Department of Transportation has shown willingness to enforce those rules and actually uh, issue penalties to fines to airlines. So why do you think these measures are so tentative? Why doesn't the CTA want to take meaningful action here? Well, that's a question that I, I feel you probably want to ask the Minister of Transport and the Canadian Transportation Agency first and foremost. What I believe is that the reason is regulatory capture, a very cozy relationship between airlines and the government and um, the Canadian Transportation Agency. We have seen two years ago when the COVID pandemic started, airlines simply stole passengers' money. They, they took the money and never provided any services in return. And they try to portray to the public as the norm. And as we learn later on from documents that, that came out in court proceedings, the government was uh, supporting the airlines because they wanted to, to protect the airlines' bottom line, not the passengers. Why is this such a problem right now? What's leading to all of these cancellations and, and rescheduled flights? The current situation that we see is, in my uh, understanding, a, a result of a large-scale overbooking. So no, normally you would conceive overbooking as a situation where you have 100 seats on a plane and 110 seats are being sold. Now, what they're doing is not, not overselling individual seats, but overselling Canadian airport's capacity. Because of the COVID, uh, CBSA CASA do not work at a full capacity, and moreover, some of the holes for physical distancing reasons cannot accommodate as many passengers as they were designed for. So in reality, the airport cannot handle as many passengers as, as previously for various reasons. And the airlines are not taking it into account. It's not clear whether um, that information is being just somewhat withheld from the airlines. I don't believe so. More likely is that the airlines are just um, pretending that, that the problem doesn't exist and selling tickets as if there were no tomorrow without taking into account the realistic, real-life physical limitations, capacity limitations, resources limitations that exist at the airport. All right, much more on all of this. AirPassengerRights.ca. Gabor, appreciate your insight. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having me. All the best. Gabor Lukacs is president of Air Passenger Rights, airpassengerrights.ca. Uh, says, so, yeah, it sounds good on, on uh, the surface when you dig, uh, dig a little deeper. Not so impressive. So he points out, so in U.S., European Union, Israel, it's pretty similar. Airlines are required to offer you a refund if the airline cancels a flight for any reason. They must give you that refund within seven days. It's 21 days in Israel, but seven days in, in the U.S. and the EU. Uh, so what we got here is a far cry from this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.